And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, as way of recap, we have been considering the doctrine of public worship recently in the afternoons. Last Lord's Day, we began a sub-series on the Lord's Supper. In that sermon, we saw the significance of its institution, instituted on Christ's last night on the earth, the night he craved communion with his disciples, that in his blood, in that cup, is his last will and testament. And it is the idea that that cup is the New Testament in his blood that Christ has bequeathed to you his righteousness, and all that he has is yours. And we saw as well the significance of the elements, that the bread and wine signify spiritual truths. And so today we build out the doctrine of the supper and consider the real presence of Jesus Christ in it. And it's very interesting that in God's providence, that this morning actually we read in the public readings the scripture text for the sermon today. So with all that said, Let's hear the word of the Lord. And uh, I believe I will read the first four verses and then jump down to verse 16 um, as those first four verses bracket what I would like to speak on today. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. All right, let's go down to verse 16, as that thought is bridged here in the communion. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray now for the preaching of it. O Lord, we come to this scripture which has confounded so many And so, Father, we pray that through the preaching of the word, you would give God's people clarity on how Jesus Christ is present in the sacrament. Father, no man is capable of preaching such wonderful and spiritual truths that transcend all the imaginations of men. Help the minister then preach Christ faithfully. Help the minister not preach in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but rather in the power of the Spirit of the Lord, that same Spirit that unites us to Jesus Christ, that we may feed on his flesh and His uh, drink of his blood, spiritually speaking, and not carnally. O Lord our God, give us that Holy Spirit now, 
that the minister may preach faithfully and the people may hear the words of the Lord and be taken up by their Savior Jesus and yearn and desire fellowship at the Lord's table with him. To that end, Father, we pray that you would help us now behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have heard all throughout this series on gospel worship, it is imperative that the church does nothing on the basis of tradition, but have a scriptural basis for all that we do so that we would hallow him as God must be hallowed. Lest we find, friends, that we are offering unto the Lord what the Bible calls strange fire. This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. You remember that is how we began our series on public worship. This is our great need and our great desire. And remember the words of our Savior incarnated. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. From Mark 7. Matters of worship, in other words, are of first importance, friends. First importance. And what I want you to understand is, you know, we are a church that is committed to the Great Commission. Praise the Lord. But the aim of the gospel is what? That saved sinners would worship God. That's the aim of the gospel. As one minister put it, missions exist because worship does not. That's the purpose of our gospel preaching. And when we worship the Lord, our born-again hearts should desire to worship God as he wants and certainly not profane his ordinances with strange fire. And what we have to solemnly recognize, friends, is that when it comes to worship, rarely is God so profaned as in the Lord's Supper. The profaneness comes from how churches see Christ's presence in it. Most especially, I want you, I'm going to spend a lot of this sermon, and it's going to be polemic in a lot of ways, but the greatest blasphemy in worship known in the church of God is the Roman Catholic Mass. That is actually the greatest blasphemy committed in Christ's church. The Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which is idolatry masquerading as the Lord's Supper. But there is also the opposing error that denies Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper entirely. Now, this is not idolatrous, perhaps, but it denies the communicant, the comfort, and the presence of Jesus Christ. And the eating of the bread and drinking of the wine in the supper becomes a bare ritual uh, or a memorial of what Jesus has done. But to embrace the true doctrine of the true, real presence of Jesus Christ and to embrace it by faith will give us great blessings. That when our faith moves our hand to take hold of Christ spiritually in the bread, And when our hand takes hold of the cup by faith and drinks the wine, we know we enjoy a true communion with Christ as our text teaches. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or fellowship of the blood of Christ? 
the bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ? There is a true communion with the Lord Jesus Christ we enjoy, but it is a spiritual presence and not a carnal one. We must understand the fellowship we enjoy with Christ at the table, friends, lest we end up in error and idolatry or we miss the spiritual blessings that we have in meeting with him at the table. The Lord says you must discern the Lord's body and bread uh, before you come. And this is all the sermon is here for us to discern the body and blood of our Lord. So with that to introduce our theme, we'll divide our time into three heads. First is the false presence rejected. Second is the real presence taught. And third is the real presence embraced. And really, most of our time is going to be spent on this first point, um, because really what is wonderful is the real presence of Christ is actually a very simple doctrine, and I think you will enjoy hearing it. But first, we have to reject the false doctrine. First, false presence rejected. So let's first reject those blasphemous and erroneous views that are observed. And we must begin with the perversion that occurs daily in the Roman Catholic Church, which is the Mass which is their sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. They teach, you might not know this, you might know this, they teach that the presence of Christ in the Mass is found in the change of the substances of bread and wine into the very flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. That doctrine is called transubstantiation. It, with the Mass, must be rejected entirely. It is contrary to the Scripture And it is contrary to common sense and to reason. But this is the teaching of the papacy. I will quote the Council of Trent, lest you think I am setting up a straw man. The Council of Trent, which condemned the Reformation, said, This holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. This is what they teach. The substance of the bread is changed into the substance of the Lord's body. And the substance of the wine is changed into the substance of his blood. And so they believe when the priest reads the words of institution, this is my body broken for you and so on. They believe this calls Christ downward, contains him in the elements, and changes the substances of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood. They say this is a miraculous thing. This is a miracle, they exclaim. That though the communicant tastes bread, they really are eating the substance of Christ's flesh. Our confession of faith, if you know it, you know it says this well. That this doctrine is repugnant not only to the scripture, but to even to common sense and reason. Now, when preaching, I don't often quote our secondary standards, but this is such a well-crafted statement. And I want to return to the repugnance this doctrine has to the scripture, because I want to first deal with the repugnancy of common sense and reason. You might wonder why those statements are in the confession, because we are not rationalists, friends, Right? We don't say that reason and common sense are the arbiter of religion, right? Notice first, though, it says it's repugnant to Scripture. We are those who believe that miracles have happened 
and can happen because God is nature's God. We believe every miracle in the word of God to be true. We believe in the ten plagues, God's truth. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, God's truth. We believe Jesus was raised again from the dead, God's truth. And we believe in that greatest miracle of all, that men's hearts are born again by the preaching of the word of God. Impossible by nature. And the greatest miracle we seek after in our ministry. But what you must see, friends, is that true biblical miracles worked by God are not contrary or repugnant to reason. What do I mean by that? Consider the miracle of transubstantiation. There is a miracle of transubstantiation in the Bible. Boys and girls, do you remember what that miracle was of transubstantiation? A true miracle. When one substance changed into another. How about when Jesus turned the substance of water into the substance of wine at the wedding at Cana? When Jesus did it, what did the governor of the feast find? Did he find water? No, he found wine. Did Jesus have to tell him, I know this looks like water, it tastes like water, but it is truly and really wine? No. Or else John would not have written that Jesus manifested his glory that we would believe on him. Friends, faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is reasonable. It is reasonable to believe God made all things in the space of six days. It is reasonable to believe Jesus Christ rose again from the dead on the third day. What is unreasonable to believe is that bread, which is bread to the senses, is human flesh. Or that wine, which is wine to the senses, is human blood. That is unreasonable. But in contrast, Rome's doctor, Thomas Aquinas, said that in this sacrament are the true body of Christ and his true blood is something that cannot be apprehended by the senses, but only by faith, which relies on divine authority. That is the kind of faith that has to be rejected, friends, because faith is not contrary to reason. My Lord does not intend for me to believe that I am eating human flesh that tastes like bread, nor does he intend the wedding guests to think they drank wine, but it tasted like water. It's preposterous in that setting, isn't it? But Rome wants you to believe it's not preposterous when they tell you that transubstantiation is quite unlike what Jesus' own miracles are. And that's what the doctrines, uh, that is the doctrine's repugnance when it comes to common sense and reason. But what about, more importantly, its repugnance to the scripture? Now, it is repugnant to the Scripture because Scripture teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ will not be bodily present until his second coming. And his body and blood retain the properties of true humanity. Though he is glorified, friends, his body can only be in one location at one time. Right now, where is Jesus, boys and girls? Do you remember where Jesus Christ is? He is located at the right hand of God the Father, right? That's where his bodily presence is. Yes, as the Son of God in his divinity, he is present everywhere. But his human body cannot be. Now, what I find so fascinating about this is that the words of institution of the supper itself teach against the idea that he is bodily present in the sacrament. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, listen to this. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death What? 
Till he come. Till he come. He is not going to be present bodily on this earth in any form until he returns. The institution itself says Christ will not come to us bodily in it. He gave us the bread and wine to remember him until that blessed day when he returns. Listen to Acts 30, uh, 3, rather, 20 through 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Christ is present in heaven bodily until he returns. And so transubstantiation is repugnant to the scriptures. It is repugnant to the true humanity of Christ. It is uh, repugnant to common sense and reason. And it must be forsaken no matter what Rome's doctors spin. It is what, and I don't say this lightly, it is what the Bible calls a lying sign and wonder. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. And do you remember the context of that chapter? It is in regard to the man of sin, the son of perdition. Popery, friends, is full of lying signs and wonders that seek to snatch souls to Rome's blasphemy. Listen to what else it says. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Delusion. That is what transubstantiation is. How deluded a man is that he can eat bread and think he is eating human flesh. Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, said that the root of the weed of popery was transubstantiation and the mass. That's how vital it is to the system. And he was put to death by Bloody Mary because of it. And in the Mass, friends, the priest sacrifices Jesus Christ. Blasphemy. He sacrifices Jesus Christ when he speaks the words of institution, offering Christ at the altar afresh in every Mass. Do not listen to me. Listen to their own catechism that you can find online. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. I cannot think of more blasphemous words, friends. This is blasphemy. Christ is contained and offered. And the reason I cite their primary documents is you might think this is just more reformed polemics against Rome that we hate Catholics. We don't hate Catholics, friends. We hate popery. We hate the papacy. We hate the papal system. We hate those who teach and practice blasphemy against our Lord Jesus. Their own catechism condemns them, not me. And then to think, a mere man, a man who dares call himself a priest, wearing his vestments, to think that that man can call down Jesus Christ and offer him on a man-made altar. It's blasphemy. After all, even think about our Lord's sacrifice. Who sacrificed our Lord on the cross? Was it a mere man? No. Hebrews 7.27. This he, meaning Jesus, did once when he offered up himself. He offered up himself. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is your priest. No hireling of the Pope can be. And what a strange thing it is to think that in the Roman Catholic system, that a Roman Catholic priest mediates between Jesus and you. 
Isn't that a strange thing that the mediator between God and man needs a mediator? This is Rome's practice, friends, to invent a cavalcade of mediators because Jesus is insufficient in their system. You've got to have Mary. You've got to have saints. You've got to have priests and popes and bishops. It's that the entire purpose of the papacy is to proclaim this one thing to you. Jesus is not enough. And this is why they are the seat and center of Antichrist. Because they, in the temple of God, come and proclaim blasphemies, claiming to be Christian. And you also have to think about what they do. Every time the Mass is held, they are reinstituting the humiliation of Jesus Christ, or attempting to. You remember, we are very clear in our doctrine that the time of Christ's humiliation was between his conception and to the time that he rose again from the dead. After that is his time of exaltation. He will never be sacrificed ever again. For him now is glory and power and honor at God's right hand. He is never a victim anymore. Yet Rome constantly makes him a victim and puts him into a state of uh, humiliation constantly. But I also want you to remember or hear what Rome says, that in the Mass, Christ is offered in an unbloody manner. I hope our little children might understand the problem with that. What does the Scripture say? Hebrews 9.22 might come to mind. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, an unbloody sacrifice is contrary to the very point. You know, you have to think with Rome, with all of her brilliant doctors, just misses that simple point that causes the entire system to crash and collapse. Our boys and girls probably could figure it out. And so as they also claim that the elements change substance into the very body of Christ, the mass becomes idolatrous to the extreme. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They worship the bread. Here is their catechism again. In the liturgy of the mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and carrying them in procession. They take a wafer, friends, and they say, ignore your senses, this is Christ's body, now bow down to it as God. Let that sink in. I don't think we do. This is awful and terrible idolatry, friends. I cannot even fathom it. Uh, two years ago, some of you might have seen this, a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church posted on Facebook that he had accidentally spilled the wine. And he came to get, they have a special cloth, evidently, by which you can mop up the body, uh, the blood of Christ. And he said how moving it was, because when he came back, there were three nuns worshiping and prostrating that spilled wine until he could clean it up. And I have to ask you, how is this any different than Aaron's golden calf? Which when he built it, and he built that altar to, said, tomorrow is a feast to who? The Lord. Right? They call their Eucharist, their Mass, a feast to the Lord, but it is idolatrous. 
And these things matter greatly, friends, because the honor of Jesus Christ is at stake in these things. There are 1.2 billion Roman Catholics in the world. They outnumber Protestants, and we know how many Protestants are actually Protestant these days. They outnumber Protestants greatly, and they partake of this blasphemous ceremony daily. What you have to see is the Mass is not just a monument to idolatry. It is present idolatry today. Rome is quieter than before, but she remains, and I believe this with my whole heart, the greatest threat to Christ's dominion today is Rome. Every Mass is a blasphemy repugnant to God and a terrible dishonor to Christ. Every soul that ends up in the clutches of Rome is in danger of the hellfire being diluted that they eat human flesh and drink human blood in the Mass. I hope after this doc, uh, discussion on transubstantiation, you would start to see a bit more how vile Rome is. I've not even discussed her pedophile priests, the Pope's assertion that he is the vicar of Christ on earth, that statues, Mary, and saints are to be worshipped, and every other wickedness the man of sin has invented. Just because Rome is quiet does not mean she is any less lethal than she was, and there can be no peace with Rome until Christ destroys her. For all the believers in Rome, the Lord Jesus simply says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. One point of application on this that might be difficult for you, if you are in a Roman Catholic family, you must never attend the Roman Catholic Mass, knowing the blasphemy knowing what they are doing or they think they are doing to the Lord. Not for a funeral, not for a wedding, not for any reason. It is blasphemy and idolatry, and the child of God can have nothing to do with it. Well, there are other false views of the presence of Christ that are to be rejected. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, while abandoning transubstantiation, the gross idolatry of it, and most of Rome's blasphemy, still could not abandon the bodily presence of Christ in the sacrament. And you might know this, that the debate between him and the other reformers was so great that he split ways with the other reformers. And sad to say, the opportunity for a unified Protestant church was lost. The Lutherans and the reformers dividing from each other because of this point on the Lord's Supper. Some people call the Lutheran view consubstantiation, but our Lutheran brethren reject that term. And so out of deference to them, I will not use it. But I will say what they do say that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are truly present in, with, and under the forms of consecrated bread and wine. They do believe the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but the true body and blood are somehow in, with, and under those elements, saying there is a sacramental union between those elements in Christ's physical body. And somehow, to me, that is even more confusing than transubstantiation. And I'm not sure anybody has really wrapped their minds around it. Though they reject the idolatrous nature of the Mass, this is still not a biblical idea. Luther's issue was this, and maybe this has been an issue for you. Christ said, this is my body which is given for you. And that was his point of contention, and he angrily stormed out when the other reformers tried to make him see the way in which that must be taken in Luke twenty-two nineteen. No matter how much the reformers pressed him on it, he would not abandon. He said, this is my body, <laughs> and he wouldn't give it up. 
But that is an overly literalistic reading of the text. And Luther had many, many good points, obviously. The Lord used his stubbornness in order to get us out of Rome, but he often could be too stubborn and not see what the counsel of other godly men had to say. You know, the Lord often spoke in figures. In other words, he said things like this, I am the door, right? John 10, 8, nobody points at a door and says, Jesus is this door. And so he uses that to communicate. He is the entrance to the sheepfold. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches in John 15 to communicate he is the nourisher of his people. But he never meant to communicate he is a literal vine or you are literal branches. And when the Lord blessed the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you, boys and girls, where was his body? (laughs) It was right there, right? Even as he held out the bread showing you that this is not a literalistic um, reading of the text. His body was in the same room. And in John 6.53, which is also where Luther was hung up, when the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And so he said, we have to eat the literal (laughs) flesh and blood of the Lord. But it is noteworthy, the other reformers pointed out in verse 63, the Lord said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. It is a spiritual feeding on Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ even intended in John chapter 6. And so we reject the Roman Catholic blasphemy, but we must also reject the Lutheran error. There is one last view to be rejected, which is that there is no presence of Christ in the sacrament. Most evangelical churches today have embraced this view, They focus entirely on the words, do this in remembrance of me. And so the supper is a memory aid, uh, but no communion or fellowship with Christ at the table. That's called the memorial view, and it too is rejected based simply on what the words of our sermon text have to say to us. And yes, the sacrament is a remembrance of what Christ has done, but it communicates much more than that. It is a means of grace where we have fellowship with Christ. I'm not going to deal with this view directly as it will be handled in our second heading, which is real presence taught. Because once you see the real presence of Christ, you will reject the memorial view out of hand. So let's look at that then. The real presence taught. And uh, understand the true presence of Christ. This will be a much shorter and much simpler uh, heading because the, the presence of Christ is a much simpler doctrine to understand. And simply put, the presence of Christ, his, his body and blood, is a, a presence that is spiritually present. That by the Holy Spirit, we communicate with his body and blood spiritually through the Holy Ghost. Christ meeting us at the table. He is the host of the table, and he feeds on us on himself truly and really, but spiritually, not carnally. We're not chewing his flesh and we're not drinking his blood, but the Holy Spirit nourishes our souls because that's what we need, right? We're not here to nourish our body. That's why we have a small taste of the bread and a sip of the wine. We are here to nourish our soul. And so this is a spiritual strengthening. And so the Holy Spirit is applying to us Christ's body and blood to us spiritually, you, you know, you see this all throughout our text. That's why I started at the very opening of 1 Corinthians 10, the first four verses, where we see that it is not just in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, that the saints had communion with Christ. 
Uh, read verses 2 to 4. And they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Do you see that our fathers in the Old Testament really and truly ate and drank of Jesus Christ, just as we do? The whole point of this chapter is to show there is a spiritual connection between God's people, Old and New Testaments, to Jesus Christ, that they truly ate and drank of Jesus, that the bread from heaven, the manna, signified the one who said, I am the bread of life. Now, boys and girls, you recognize that Jesus did not have a physical body prior to his incarnation. How did they drink of him? How did they eat of him? How did they commune with the lamb, uh, with the bread of life? Well, you remember, he is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, friends. And so the saints in the Old Testament, by the Holy Ghost, could communicate with Jesus Christ. That's why they are saved in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit can apply the benefits of Christ outside of time itself, because the Holy Spirit is outside of time, and he can apply to you in any age the benefits of Jesus Christ. And so he can apply spiritually Christ crucified to Abraham and Moses, though Christ was yet to be crucified. And you think about this. The disciples at the Last Supper communed with Jesus' body and blood, even though Jesus would not be sacrificed until the next day. Yet they truly communed with the body and blood of Jesus. There is a fellowship the saints have with Jesus Christ that transcends time and space, made possible by the Holy Spirit. And these are glorious things. So that our communion at the table with Jesus is made possible by the Holy Ghost, a spiritual communion with Christ's body and blood. Consider how 1 Corinthians 12, 13 teaches this. I'm not inventing this. It says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into that one Spirit. See, we drink of Jesus Christ and commune with Jesus Christ by the Spirit's work. He connects us to Jesus And that concept shows us how 1 Corinthians 10.17 works. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. By the Spirit of God, we are made to drink in Christ's blood spiritually and made partakers of the one bread by that Spirit. And, you know, to prove that there is a real presence in true fellowship with Jesus, consider verse 18. Throughout this entire text, we find that there is communion with all manner of things. In verse 18, Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. He's saying just as there was a real partaking of the sacrifices of the altar, so then in the Lord's Supper we partake of Christ crucified at Calvary, but applied to us by the Holy Spirit. There is a true fellowship here. And the most solemn thing here that proves it is really not Israel after the flesh, but the Gentiles who have fellowship with devils. He says in verse 19 and 20, What say I then? 
that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifices to idols is anything. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye have fellowship with devils. This also, boys and girls, might give you an interesting insight into idolatry, that demons are behind it, and that in idolatry you have fellowship with demons. And this is the analog he's saying in the Lord's Supper, is you truly have fellowship with Jesus Christ at the Lord's table. It's not a bare memorial, but you are there with Christ himself, just as the pagans have fellowship with demons. So in uh, all of that then said, read verses 16 and 17 again to get the blessing. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. There is a true and real fellowship with Jesus Christ at the Lord's table, people of God. Just as he desired to be with his first disciples and he craved communion with them, he desires to be with you, his disciples, at his table, that you might partake of his once-for-all sacrificial offering by faith, that you might draw near to him as he draws near to you, that through this sacramental feast we would have the blessing we heard of in John 6, 55-56. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. It's that communal dwelling, the Lord dwelling in us and we dwelling in the Lord that we are after at the table of the Lord, that we would grow in closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ by our communion at the table. But let me say, your mind must be renewed first to understand these things, that your faith would know these things when you come to the Lord's Supper. This is a spiritual meal, and it must be partaken of by faith and understanding. The Holy Spirit, using your faith and using the renewed mind in order to apprehend or grab hold of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. Faith, friends, informed by the word of God, feeds on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, as a child feeds on his mother's milk. Too few receive the benefits of the supper because their mind is not transformed by the scriptures and their heart does not believe what it ought to believe about the supper. But faith, friends, what faith does with these sensible signs is really marvelous. By faith, you understand that Jesus Christ is with you in the supper by the Spirit. And by faith, you see that just as physical bread and wine nourish your body, so too does Jesus Christ really and truly nourish your soul. That's the linkage there, friends. That as this bread nourishes the body, so does the bread of life nourish my soul. And as I drink the wine, and there is a bit of nourishment that comes from that, how much greater the nourishment of my soul, my eternal soul is, when Jesus Christ, who is the vine, feeds me the branch. It does not happen automatically, friends. This is why I am laboring to preach this subject. Shoving the elements into your mouth without faith benefits you not at all. You'll have to see that next time when we talk about preparation. But the scripture says, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
Now that's even more chilling when you consider the Roman Catholic, 1.2 billion Roman Catholics who do not discern the Lord's body and blood when they come to the Mass. And because we do not discern the Lord's body, 1 Corinthians 11.30 warns us, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Well, friends, what I would like to conclude with then, I, I will come and touch some of these other topics I want to talk about maybe next time. But I want us to conclude with the real presence embraced, which is really more of an application of how to embrace this doctrine to the health of your soul so that when you come to the table in March, uh, you might receive even greater blessings. So you must have faith through a spiritual understanding, lay hold of Jesus Let your heart believe what is transpiring at the Lord's Supper, that the Lord has come to meet with you, that Jesus Christ by his Spirit has come to have fellowship and communion with you. When you take the bread, when you take the cup in your hand, let faith strengthen your assurance that Christ has given himself for you. And I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts this, and I'll butcher it, but it's here on your your outline, that as real as these elements I hold are, I truly have a crucified Savior given for me. That is the wonderful news of the sacrament, friends. That as real as this bread is that I hold, and as real as the wine that I taste and tingles my senses is, I have a crucified Savior given for me. Because my faith is so weak, friends, that often when I hear the word of God, I just do not believe as I ought to believe. I have these tokens out of Christ's love This is my body, which is broken for you. And he meant it. This is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he means that when you see the wine poured by the minister. This is Christ for me. As surely as I taste the wine, the blood of Jesus Christ covers my sins. And my soul is nourished by faith and by understanding. When I look at the bread and I look at the wine, I see tokens of Christ's body and blood. And I see, as we sang in Psalm 113, how low he stooped down to come from heaven for me, to have fellowship with me, a sinner. And so when I take the bread, and I love the sacramental actions, right? When I take the bread or I take up the cup, I see how I have laid hold of Jesus Christ by faith. As surely as I take that bread and cup, I see my faith has laid hold of the Savior. Because he has laid hold of me, because he is given for me first, and then I reach out by faith to grab him. And though I take a portion of the bread and wine, I partake of the whole Christ. When I sit at the table, I see it as a foretaste of the great wedding feast, which is why the table has significance, friends, and should not be taken from God's people. When I handle the elements, I see that God has taken on flesh, that he might be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that I may be wed to him, that I may be an heir of God, that he might be my brethren, my brother. When I come the table, uh, at the, to the table, the elements t- say to me, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And I see the promise as I celebrate the sacrament regularly. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. When I understand how Christ is present, I know that my Savior is in heaven now and not on the earth. And that actually is to my health. 
Because the word of God says, when I know that, that I am to set my affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So I take the supper and I desire this heavenly minded life where Christ is now. So I can walk and I grab hold of the elements that Jesus Christ would help me walk better as a citizen of heaven on earth and live unto righteousness. That this present world would die more and more to me. That heaven would be more real to me. And that's what I plead for when I come to the sacrament. To know, as I have said already, that as the bread nourishes and the wine nourishes, so Jesus Christ is truly nourishing my spirit. And to what end? So I might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. Luke one seventy four. The sacrament, friends, is the condescension of the Lord in heaven down to us. And what I have often loved seeing is when commentators make the connection, and this is not original to me, so I don't even think about that. It is our analog to the condescension of the Lord to Thomas, who doubted the word. His doubt of the word of the apostles that said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Jesus came and said, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. That is what the Spirit of Christ speaks to you when you handle the elements. Be not faithless but believing. Christ knew Thomas's faith. Think of how the Lord condescended to the man. He could have said, you must believe the word of God. Why did you not believe the word of God? But instead, Christ knew Thomas's faith needed to touch and handle his pierced side and hands. And we are unwilling to admit our need to handle and touch the Lord, beloved. But in the sacrament, we truly touch and handle the Lord by faith. The Holy Spirit assuring us that as we handle the elements, that the Jesus we hear of in the word of God was truly crucified for us and is now at God's right hand, so that we would say as Thomas did after observing the supper, my Lord and my God, and bow down before him in homage, not worshiping the cracker and the wine, but instead worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. The the Spirit of the Lord uses these elements to cause our faith to look unto Jesus, truly, and to show me, the sinner, that Christ was crucified for me, just as sure as the minister breaks that bread is a broken Savior for me, and he is here at the table with me, that Christ is for me. And all the problems with Lutheran doctrine aside, one of the things that you must commend uh, Luther for is his unwavering commitment to see in the sacrament that it preaches Christ is for you. And that is the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. And may you be blessed by remembering it before you commune next time in anticipation that you will truly have communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Next time, we will consider our need for preparation before the sacrament. But until then, let's rise as we go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the word of God, which casts light and illumination on the sacrament. Father, what a God you are. 
to condescend down to us, the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh, taking on true blood, that he might be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, that he may be broken for us, that we uh, who are sinners who deserve eternal hellfire have a broken, crucified Savior who has now been risen from the dead and seated at your right hand, never to be humiliated ever again. And we thank you that the Lord's Supper is not contrary to that teaching, but instead sweetly supports it. And so help us, Father, see Christ for us. Help us touch and taste Jesus Christ with our physical senses in a manner that we, by our spirit, connected by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ, would truly have the assurance uh, that Christ is broken for us, was broken for us, and Christ is given for us, truly out of the love of God the Father. Oh, Father, we pray that next time we come to the table, as our faith lays hold of Christ by taking hold of the bread and the wine, we would truly worship you, saying, my Lord and my God. Help our faith, Father. It is so weak. Help us in the sacrament especially. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.